All right, well, we are going through the book of Exodus. Here in the early chapters, we'll take about a chapter a week. And then as we get going into some of these other chapters, we may begin to bundle a few chapters together that allow us to take a quicker pace. But if you're reading ahead, before you come into Sunday morning, you can be reading about a chapter is what we're trying to do. So Exodus chapter 2, the way deliverance begins. We actually can back up in, in kind of addressing that title into chapter 1. And the way deliverance begins is with a crisis, the need for deliverance, right? A deliverance is great. What precedes deliverance is not always something we rejoice about so much. And in this circumstance, chapter 1, um, the nation of Israel has grown to, we know, 603,000 men of fighting age, which would, by you know, most estimates, put the children of Israel as somewhere around 2 million people, counting women and children. And so they've grown to a large company of people. Well, this has caused uh, the nation of Egypt and the leadership to become fearful. And so their thought was, we don't want to get rid of them. We don't want to drive them out of the land. We like the fact that they work for us and we have slaves. But we don't want them to grow anymore. So we're going to start putting to death all of their male children. And that is the crisis that we find ourselves in. The last thing we see is that they were to throw their firstborn sons into the Nile. So we're going to see the Lord, though, raise up a deliverer. And it's going to come in a very natural way. It's not going to be immediately um, inspiring. It's not going to be immediately. I mean, we are because we know how the story ends. But if you're watching it unfold, you will see the response of people. They're not impressed. But God is getting ready to do a deliverance. And that is an important lesson for us to just tuck away. Let's read, though, verses 1 through 6, where we see that God raises up a deliverer. A man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. So we begin here on that point that God is going to do a supernatural work, but it begins with very natural means. As a matter of fact, you, you could even maybe make a case other than the fact that God is at work and we know how the story ends. But if you're watching it happen, it's like, this is the deliverer. Actually, I don't know if you got it completely straight, Lord. They're killing all of our baby boys. And so your idea of deliverance is to send us one more baby boy that has a death sentence on his head. This is not the way deliverance is going to come. But that's exactly the way the deliverance is going to come. It's going to be 80 years from this point before the deliverance begins to happen in earnest. But this is the way it begins here with just the birth of a small child. This is the last of the special circumstance births that Moses is going to refer to. We've seen Sarah who was old in age, along with Abraham, couldn't have a child, and they ended up having a child. And then Isaac, um, 
uh, marries Rebecca, and they have difficulty. She eventually has a child. Jacob gets married, and there's a whole different set of crisis that goes on with that family, right? And all the, the, you know, the two wives and the um, handmaidens and all the rivalry that exists in that con- among that family. But there, there's, just a, there's always a tension around the birth of a child. Why? Because back in Genesis, the Lord told you know, Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. You can read that as the, uh, the gospel, the early form of the gospel. This is how salvation is going to come. Man is going to be redeemed through the seed of, a wo- of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And of course, that ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus, but there's a crisis that happens all around it. So even in chapter 1, where we read that there's this uh, threat to wipe out all the male children of Israel through whom the deliverer will come, you can see that it should cause a sense of, of tension and anxiety to the reader because it's like, if all the male children are killed, then how will this world ever be saved? So that's kind of the backdrop behind what's, what's going on here. Um, in those early days, uh, the births were all about a small struggling family growing into nationhood. Well, this small struggling family is now a nation. And it's no longer about them becoming a nation. It's about rescuing this nation from annihilation. And that is where we find ourselves out in this story. Um, we don't have the names of uh, Moses' parents given to us here or his sister, but uh, we know that it's his dad's name is Amram, Jochebed is the mother's name, and Miriam is the sister. And um, th- th- this family decides to keep the baby. And when they can no longer hide it, they decide to put this baby into this ark and to set it into the Nile. Um, which gives you an indication of how certain the death of that child would have been had they continued to keep it in their house. And those are some hard choices for parents, isn't it? When it, when it feels safer to put a child into a basket and float it down the Nile than it does to keep the child with you. You can imagine the amount of grief and anxiety and sleepless nights that would have been in this household. But the time has come and she knows if I continue to do this on the patrols as they come and do their checks or if they hurt a baby, something's going to go wrong. And so they, I would say, because of how it turns out, led of the Holy Spirit by God to put this child into an ark, which is interesting because... Moses, who's writing, when he wrote Genesis, he also wrote about an ark, didn't he? He wrote about an ark, a, a large ship that was going to preserve the world from annihilation. And there were eight that were put in there. Now he's using the same word, and it's the only time that Moses uses, the only two times Moses uses this word is with in reference to the days of Noah and the ark that was made by him. And now this ark that was made by uh, Jacobed, Amram, and uh, maybe Miriam, and they're placing the child in there. But again, deliverance from annihilation for the nation of Israel and really for the entire world. Because if all children are wiped out, how's man going to be saved? And so this ark becomes an ark of salvation for Noah. It becomes an ark of salvation for the nation of Israel. But in our day, we look to a different ark, don't we? We don't look to a, a, a vessel floating on water. We look to Jesus Christ. He is the one that provides us salvation from annihilation, from eternal destruction, right? 
This is what the Bible says is that we will either live forever with the Lord or we'll live forever in a place of torment and judgment. But God is a God of love. God is a God who made you, me, and all of mankind to be in a relationship with him. And he doesn't want to destroy, so he provided his son. His son came and he took the blows. He took the destruction of his body and his flesh for our sin so that all who put faith and trust in him can be delivered and can be saved and can have a relationship with him. I realize probably most of you have made that call and that plea to the Lord, forgive me my sins, I want to be saved. But maybe some of you haven't. And if you haven't, you need to make that call upon the Lord. Because the, the Bible says the soul that sins will surely die and is separated from God. But that's not God's intention. God wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to have life during life, and he wants you to have life after life, eternal life. And the only way you can find that deliverance is to come to the ark of Jesus and run to him and find safety from the destruction of our own sin. He hung on that cross, and he paid that price for us. So we can read about the days of deliverance for Noah, or we can read about the days of deliverance for the nation of Israel inside of Egypt, but there's a, there's a, there's a day of deliverance for us, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's how he's been saving people for the last 2,000 years. And, and the door is open for you to come. Ah, not me. You Christian folks, that's good for you, but not people like me. You see, the way I was raised and stuff, and I'm surprised this building isn't even falling down. I walked into it. Hey, the Lord loves you, and the Lord has brought you to this place to hear these words, that you're loved of God, and that he has a plan to save your life, and he's already fully implemented it, but you must come to him, and I pray that you will do that before this day is over. We see the providence of God here, don't we? The, the basket... The ark stops in just the right place at the right time. And the princess comes out at just the right time to take a bath down by the river. And Miriam happens to be there at just the right time. It's a providence of God. God is overseeing this. And you say, well, th these were, you know, this was just coincidence. I don't think so. This is God's providential timing to deliver. And so we're, we're reading here uh, about this. And the, the princess, we suggested last week, or two weeks ago, I guess now, um, would be Hatshepsut, a, a queen, a princess of the daughter of Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh at this time probably would have been Thutmose I, um, and, and she would have been the princess. And she was, some, she was an interesting lady, if this is indeed is the one. Um, she is the one, remember, that uh, Amenhotep II began to destroy all the images of her. Not all of them were done, and you can find some images of her today. And she is um, obviously a woman, but in these images, she's got a big, you know, Egyptian pharaoh goatee. Um, and the kind of idea is, I might be a woman, but I can still rule this nation. And so she was, she kind of challenged the systems anyway. And so for her to be doing this, it kind of fits with who we know her to be historically. And so she, uh, she despises her father's decree. Now, you know, we don't know, but maybe she would have been in full agreement with this whole plan to wipe out the male children. But when she looked at that baby, something happened in her heart. Now, we could, you can make the argument she was just that kind of a woman, and that's consistent with her character. Maybe so. I don't have any information that would say otherwise. 
But at the very least, we know that God was making certain those natural feelings and emotions that humans have, that when she opened it and saw that baby, boom, her heart strings were pulled upon. And she was like, there is no way I'm throwing this child into the Nile. Because she could have just said, throw it in the Nile. I mean, it would have been that easy. But there was something that was happening deep within her, maybe not even something she could fully explain. But we know the Lord is raising up a deliverer. Let's keep reading verses 7 through 10. We're going to see little Miriam make a giant step. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Miriam, we don't, can't say with certainty, but most would suggest she probably was somewhere around the 8 to 12 years old, a young girl. God seems to like to use young people, doesn't he? We see this all through Scripture, even, even the mother of our Lord, Mary, just a teenage girl, when she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and she had, um, you know, then conceived and had uh, Jesus um, and carrying her, him, this was a miracle, but he, he found it pleasurable to use a, a young person. Um, Esther, um, don't know exactly her age, but again, we get the sense that she was a young woman. And the Lord often steps in. Or how about Ruth and how the Lord worked through Ruth when, you know, Naomi was coming back to her own land. She decides to, you know, not stay in, in Moab, her home country, but Ruth decides to travel with. And God used each of these women and many, many others for some pretty profound works of salvation. Of course, Esther was able to go to the king and petition the king to not annihilate and wipe out the entire nation. Repeated theme in scripture, isn't it, for the Israelites? Um, Ruth is going to be in an uncomfortable situation, coming to a land that is not her own, where there is not provision, and she's actually going to end up in the lineage of our Lord. Or we can think of Mary, of course. And here we have Miriam. A young girl. And, you know, we're just getting the summary of the story. But the way I, I, I kind of see, I don't know if you just imagine the movie reel starts to play in your head of how these scenes unfold. I see, you know, her hiding there in the reeds. The uh, princess finds the basket, begins to cry. There's the, oh, look how cute this little Hebrew baby is. And then without any kind of uh, smooth transition whatsoever, young Miriam says, do you want me to get a nurse for you? No introductions, no <clears throat> clear your throats, try and find a clever way to get into the conversation. She's just like, oh. And, and now you can imagine this very wise woman, uh, uh, the, the, the princess saying, yeah, that would be great. Do you know anybody? I do know somebody. I'll be right back. Running home, grabbing mom and saying, come, I've got a job for you. What is it? You're going to nurse Moses. You're going to take care of him. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. 
In other Mesopotamia documents, when it talks about finding abandoned children, it was common for those that found them to go and find and hire somebody to nurse the child, but not like come and go nurse, to take the child and to have that child with them for up to five years. Three to five years was a common period of time. And so the family receives Moses back to themselves for a period of three to five years based upon you know, what was common of the day. And she's going to be paid. Can you just see the hand of God here? Oh, you want to kill children? You want to throw them in the Nile? Well, I'll tell you what. You want to oppress these people? You want to take advantage of them and use them to make a buck? Well, here's the deal. I'm going to get a Hebrew child that you're going to save in the Nile, and you're going to pay that woman to raise him up who's going to be the deliverer, and you guys are going to come to a crashing heap. That's our Lord. And again, you read this, you're like, a baby? We don't need another baby. That's the last thing we need, God. No, it's exactly what they needed. And so steps up in such a wonderful way. So the name Moses, it was common among the Egyptians. For example, Tutmos III, um, who is believed to be the uh, Pharaoh, and you put that image up there of him. This is the Pharaoh that, according to one reckoning of the Egyptian dynasties that I gave to you last week, um, this was the guy that was exiling Moses that we're going to read about in just a moment. So a common name. Moses III, and um, this is a, a guy that he's going to have a conflict with. So that's, that's the name given to him. Let's keep on, on reading here, verses 11 through 15. And we see that Moses is going to reject Egypt. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, okay, fast forward from baby to this point, probably 40 years have elapsed. Read Acts chapter 7, a great parallel passage that will give us some years of Moses' life. But I'm going to leave it to you to study that on your own. So 40 years later, he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out a second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Which, by the way, in that Acts chapter 7 passage, it's that phrase that Stephen is preaching a sermon on. And he's speaking to the nation of Israel. You always reject God's deliverance. You always reject what God is doing. And so we see here in just a a little snippet here that becomes a preaching point for Stephen that they're, that they're not prepared. So you have this great deliverer, but now those in need of deliverance are saying, we're not interested in what you're selling. Um, so he says, you know, who are you to do this? And so this causes him to be afraid. He says, do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Despite being raised and educated as an Egyptian in the court of Pharaoh, the daughter of Pharaoh's, um, uh, you know, the princess, he doesn't want it anymore. 
He makes a decision here. And there's a lot more going on behind the scenes that we find out about in Hebrews chapter 11, which will be there in just a moment. But there's something going on deep in his heart. He's making choices. I mean, we read it. It's not a smart choice here that he makes to kill this person. But behind that scene is, who am I going to identify with? And as we read here, almost like his stepmom, when he sees the Hebrews, there's compassion comes to him. Look at the burden. Look at the oppression. Look at the way they're being dealt with. And so God moves on his heart to have this kind of compassion. And so he takes the life of this Egyptian. He tries to hide it. It's not hidden. It's discovered. He's fearful, and he's going to flee. But read with me from Hebrews 11.23 down to uh, verse 27. This is the great hall of faith. It says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, and here it is, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So at a point in time, which would seem to be linked around this time of his life, he begins to make choices. He decides, who am I going to be connected with? Am I going to be connected with Egypt and Pharaoh and, and this bondage and this oppression? Or am I going to identify with the people of God who I am? Am I going to desire to be connected with the Lord himself, that one who is the invisible one? And so he had to make a choice between that which was visible and that which was invisible. And it was by faith that he made this choice. He believed by aligning himself with the people of God and the Lord, there would come a great deliverance and the reward would be greater than what he had in his hand at that very moment, and that was the passing pleasures of sin. He made a wise decision, didn't he? But you can imagine in that moment, you have everything, and you're choosing to go to nothingness as far as the world. So you're, you're gonna, you're not, it's not even like less. You're going to be driven out. You're going to have nothing except what you can carry and you can run with, and that is exactly what took place. But it is important for us to know that sin is a passing pleasure. It's not that sin can't have a moment of enjoyment, but that enjoyment is going to pass, and the end result of sin is not life, but is death. The soul that sins will surely die. Now, sin comes, and it promises all kinds of excitement and fulfillment and enrichment and development of who you really are. But the reality is, sin is a deceiver. Sin is a liar. It's in denying yourself and embracing God that you really find out who he is and who you are. Well, I gotta go find myself. Well, don't go to sin, because you're gonna scare yourself to death when you find yourself there. And you'll wish you wouldn't have found yourself. But if you run to the Lord, and you embrace him, and you deny this, the pleasures of this world, you will find 
life. You're going to find out who the Lord really is and what he really has for you. Now that's so opposite to the, the, the mantra of our culture. What culture says is, well, you don't want me to deny myself. You're not asking me to be a Christian and follow Jesus and deny what I'm feeling inside of me and the passions and the desires and the way I think of myself. Are you? Yes, we are. Just like Jesus asked that of us, we're happy to pass on the message to you is that if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ and have eternal life and have life during life, you must take up your cross and follow him. You must deny yourself. And that's where the, you know, so much of what we hear is, well, you don't want to deny, you don't want me to deny myself. Yes, I do. I want you to do that, and I want to do that. I want to do a better job of denying myself and following Christ. So mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, you know, son, daughter, be prepared that when family comes at you, and it's like, if you don't embrace my sin and you don't embrace my choices, then you hate me. Don't fall for it. Stand up and be bold and say, no, I do want you to deny yourself because that sin is going to pass and the pleasure with it and it's going to leave corruption in the end and it's going to ruin your life and it's going to keep you from the Lord. So follow. You know, I didn't make my last points. I'm going to circle back for a moment because it kind of ties in again. But just uh, with Miriam, uh, little Miriam taking a giant step, you know, we can be afraid of stepping out into certain circumstances. Now, it doesn't seem like she dealt with a lot of fear. She kind of just wanted the little kids, hey, go out there, Miriam, the Lord is with us. Okay, the Lord is with us, and just full of faith does it, right? But, you know, all of us are going to find ourselves at a place at some point in time where we've got to step out of the reeds and into the plan that God has. We've got to come out from behind. And it's not that you're necessarily hiding in a secret Christian. I don't mean that... Don't attach that to this metaphor, okay? I'm just saying, you're not out yet. You're not out in that place of speaking for the Lord with that person or to that group of people. But the timing is coming. When it comes, step forward. If little Miriam can do this with this woman who's going to rule the world, certainly we can do that in our circumstances. And we can take these giant steps of faith. But Moses is like, all right, I am done with all of this. I see what it's about. I've tasted, I've seen for 40 years, and I see these people of God. And again, almost like his stepmom, whose heart was touched with compassion for him, his heart is now touched with a burden for the burden of his countrymen. And so he ends up fleeing and going into the land of Midian. Moses kills this Egyptian, he flees from the wrath of Pharaoh. And he finds out that he cannot deliver with the arm of the flesh, the strength of his own ability. For the first 40 years, he was raised and he was told, you're really something. The next 40 years, he's going to spend in Midian finding out, you're a nobody. And then the next 40 years, God is going to raise up somebody who thought they were something, who realized they were nothing, and that God can use them for something, if you can follow all that. But that, that's a pretty good model for our life, isn't it? You know, we think we're something, and then we come to that place of brokenness and humility, and then, you know, finally, and then God can raise us up and he can use us. God wants to use vessels that he'll get glory and he will get honor from, like a Miriam, like a humbled Moses on the backside of the desert. Not a proud Moses in the land of Egypt, 
a humbled Moses. He, matter of fact, he gets so humbled, he doesn't, he doesn't even want to open his mouth when he goes to Egypt. That doesn't work out so well for him. We'll get to that, I think, next, in the next couple of weeks. But, I mean, he is broken down big time. Luke 16, 15, the Lord says, For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Oh, he's a, he's a perfect deliverer. He was raised in the court of Pharaoh. He has all the education of an Egyptian, right? He walks like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He's a perfect guy to deliver these people. He has influence. He has power. This is perfect. He, we're going to you know, use the political arm to change everything. Yeah, that gets shot to you know, smithereens. Can't use that at all because that's not God's way. God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. They are better than, his, uh, than ours. And it's always going to require us to have an incredible amount of faith to watch him work and move. Because God finds pleasure in faith. He finds pleasure in it. So this is, <laughs> this is the failure that he makes as he thinks he can do it on his own. But as he goes and as he flees to Midian, he's going to learn some really important lessons. One is the timing of God. God wanted to use them. He got that right. God wanted to deliver them. He got that right. And he realized there was going to be a conflict between the two, but his timing was all wrong. And then the, there was that issue of humility that we talked about. He was full of pride. He needs to be humbled. And he needed to learn what the plan of God was. And then he learned, needed to receive the power from God. Those four things, timing, humility, plan, and power. I encourage you to think upon them. I encourage, even, it applies to all of us, but I just want to even say to those of you that maybe feel like God is calling you into full-time mission work, or God is calling you into full-time ministry of some sort, you got to remember these things. The timing, and the humility, and the plan, and the power. And a lot of people can't get through those four. They end up quitting, and not fulfilling what God has called them to, timing, humility, the plan, and God's power. Because what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So he brings them over to Midian. We got a map there to kind of give you an idea of where Midian is. If you can't see it, you can turn the back of your Bible. But uh, Midian is east, is southeast. You got the two antennas of the Red Sea there. And um, he's on the eastern side of the, uh, the, the Red Sea. Uh, the Gulf of Aqaba. So that's where Midian is. That's where he travels to. He travels quite a distance from, um, from the land of Egypt. So in verses 16 through 22, we're going to continue the story here with Moses in obscurity. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. The end of verse 17 and verse 18, um, 19, it's almost like a foreshadowing of his entire ministry. Just, just listen. Again, I'll, I'll read the end of verse 17. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Ruel, their father said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, where is he? 
It's almost like, are you kidding me? We're on the backside of the desert. A man came who was kind. What are you ladies thinking? You want to get married someday? Where is this guy? I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into it a little bit. But anyway, it's, maybe not either. So you can, you can argue that one out over your burrito. But um, um, so you said, where is this guy? Go get him. Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man. And he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And for 40 years he was in that, that land. So now we have Moses in obscurity. We saw Moses as a somebody. Now we see Moses in obscurity. But he goes to Midian. Now why would he go to Midian? Well, maybe a little clue is given to us in Genesis 25, verses 1 and 2. In those verses, we find out that after Sarah died, Abraham married a lady by the name of, anybody know? Keturah. And Keturah bore him children. And one of the sons that she bore him in verse 2 is a son by the name of Midian. So the Midianites and the Israelites had a common father, but different mothers. And actually, um, Raul, and we know him maybe better as Jethro, same, same man, different names. He's a, he's a guy that worships the Lord. What, what Lord did he worship? The God of Abraham. So for him to flee to Midian, there, there, this makes some sense here. Um, both, you know, from a, a family lineage standpoint, but also from a faith standpoint, distance standpoint as well. Get away. So he goes to this place, and um, he is going to learn those lessons that we talked about of, um, you know, God's timing and humility and what is God's plan and, and his place of power. Interesting that um, the Apostle Paul spent some years in, the, in, in Arabia as well. So after he got saved, he fled, I think it was 17 years before he was like launched into full-time ministry, we would say. So God uses this spot to raise up his men, and, um, and God continues to use desert places, difficult places, to raise us up and to teach us the lessons. You know, it's just when you are humbled, it is a lot easier to hear the voice of the Lord speaking to you. Now, we can keep ourselves humble by staying in the presence of the Lord. That's, that's how we do that. But when we get full of pride or we have yet to receive, get to that place where the Lord can get the glory from our lives, he will bring us in those places that humble us and praise the Lord for that. And, you know, it's not fun, maybe, in the beginning. 40 years a stranger. I don't know that that was the best experience for him, uh, humanly speaking, but it was the best thing for him, spiritually speaking. Because he really does learn that lesson of humility. We're only going to see him make um, one mistake um, after this. And it's going to be recorded in scripture at least. So if you're in that place of the wilderness, if you're in Midian, if you're in that place where you know the call of God, yet it seems like, I don't know, it just seems like everything has gotten sideways, learn your lesson in that spot. Take the time to learn while you're in, if you will, this obscure place God has you. Let's wrap it up here, verses 23 through 25. Now it happened in the process of time. Underline that, the process of time. Because every one of our lives are in the process of time. And that is a hard thing. We can fight against the process of time. We know, we know now that 
It took 80 years from the time he was born, 40 years from the time he was exiled. That was the process of time. That the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. Probably when they, this Pharaoh died, maybe the next guy will be easier. But Amenhotep II was not easier. And so they cried out, we're not going to have it easier. And God heard because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and acknowledged them. Yes, I see. Yes, I hear. But he has been hearing. But the idea at this point with God hearing is, I hear and now in the process of time, it's time for me to act upon this. I've been working. Child was born. Child was delivered. Child's been spending 80 years figuring out what it means to be a vessel of the Lord. I mean, how many people in Israel who are under the oppression of, of the Egyptians knew any of this? I mean, even Miriam and Aaron and the family of Moses, they, they had a sense, but 80 years, that's a long, long time, isn't it? And so does it feel like deliverance is happening? Probably doesn't feel like deliverance is happening. But God is working out Things according to his timetable. Timetable? What timetable? I am so glad you asked. Because Genesis 15, 13, this obscure verse in Genesis says, Then God, he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. What is one of the elements of the process of time? Is God's word being true. What happened if it was delivered in 300 years? We've got a problem. Because God spoke a word of prophecy and put a, a time stamp on it. And if it happens in 300 years or 350 years, now all of a sudden, how do we deal with the word of the Lord? There's a prophetic word that's being fulfilled. And even a less obscure verse, a more obscure verse, go the other way. Verse 16 of that same chapter says, but in the fourth generation... They, your people, shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I'm sure all of you got that verse memorized. And the iniquity of the Amorites, the people dwelling in the land of Canaan, their iniquity is not complete. I can't give you the land yet because these people, I'm going to give them more time to repent and to turn from their idolatry and from their immorality, from their, their, their you know, child-sacrificing ways. I'm going to give them a chance to repent, and they're going to have four generations. And, of course, what we get, verse 13, there's 400 years. How much patience do you have? Man, the Lord is patient. But, you know, none of us ever get upset about the patience of God towards us, do we? You know, how long have you been saved? How long has it been since you got your life right with the Lord? You know, 10 years, let's say. And, and now you're like, now it's all taken care of. God, come back. Where is he? Why isn't he doing anything? Because he's waiting on another person just like you and just like me to get right. And some will repent in this time period. Now the Amorites, the land, the inhabitants of Canaan, they will not repent. And so when that time that God has given for them to repent, writing to, um, I forget what church it is, maybe Thyatira, maybe Pergamos, the Lord says in Revelation that he gave them space to repent. They have space. They have 400 years worth of space to repent. And they don't. In the process of time, 
There's that prophetic word that says it's going to be about 400 years. There's this patience element in the process of time. I want to give these people the opportunity to get it right and come. It's interesting because sometimes we will have accusations come at God from both vantage points. How dare God would go in and wipe out the, these, these inhabitants of the land? You know, why didn't he give them time? Well, he gave them 400 years. And I will say confidently, emphatically, there is no person that has ever met the judgment of God that had in them the, the, a day of redemption that God cut short. When they are judged, it's because they will never come to repentance. The idea of Genesis chapter 6 that the Lord says, I will not always strive with man because there comes a point in man's heart where he hardens him. It's like what Jesus said to the, the religious leaders. You are not willing to come to me that you might have life. So God is gracious and patient. And, and you know, we have a lot of smart people supposedly in our day that say, well, if God drove out the inhabitants, as it says, then we want nothing to do with a God like that because that's not fair. Well, what about if you're the person that's suffering? What if you're the child that's being sacrificed? What if you're the people that's being enslaved by these individuals and being tormented for 400 years? I think you would have a different perspective. But on the other side, you have a group of people God's people, the chosen people of Israel, that are in the land, and he hears their cries for all of this, however long it had been, you know, that they had been under persecution. And he hears their cries, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. Lord, why are you waiting? We're your people. You've given us promise. Well, there's a prophetic word out there that I can't break. And there's patience that I'm showing so I have to sit and I will wait and you will go through these things until the process of time is fulfilled. Pretty interesting when you take a step back. Now we can look at this and it's easy. There's no emotional attachment to the Amorites or really maybe a little bit to these Israelites, but we know how the story ends. Don't worry, guys, it all works out. But what about when it's our life? What about when we're, God is showing patience to that brother, or that sister, or that man or that woman over there? And it keeps on going and going and going. Like, when are you going to do something? I am doing something. It doesn't look like much. All you got is a little baby that's hiding on the backside of the desert. This doesn't seem like a good plan, Lord. Yet God is doing something. And in the process of time, he will do exactly what he has promised to do. And it will be, without question, one of the mightiest things God did in all of Israel's history most important miracle in the nation of Israel looks like nothing right now, doesn't it? The process of time. You know, we would love to have God's calendar, wouldn't we? I'd like to see when you're going to do this and when you're going to do that and all that. I'd like to know your, your can I see your day planner? You know, can you sh share your calendar with me so I know exactly when and how are things to do? But the Lord doesn't do that. It, little places he drops some calendar events for us. What we need to be concerned about is not the Lord's calendar, but his character. And, you know, they may not know when it's going to happen, but they could know the character of God and how he is faithful to their forefathers. And if they can, how much more us who have had Jesus Christ come and die upon the cross for my sin. We know of the Lord's character. We know of his, the Lord's heart for us. He is for us, and he has sent his son. So you may not know his calendar, but if you want to, you can know his character. And that's more significant than his calendar, don't you think? So the, here's, here's the, 
here's the truth that we need to walk away with. Here's the, the hard lesson. So just prepare yourself. Some of us need to quit whining and complaining about the ways of God that we don't understand and just stand back and say, I know your character. I don't understand your calendar. But I'm not going to whine and I'm not going to complain and I'm not going to question you and I'm not going to be angry at you anymore because I know who you are. God's not going to inform you or me with every detail of this world or even our life or the people we love. He's going to say, do you believe me? Do you trust me? Wait. And the reality is for some of us, we may not understand the calendar of God until we're in the next life. Because we read about one generation of Israel that was delivered. But what about all the others that died in slavery? We kind of forget about them. But they, had, they didn't see it. They didn't get to taste it. And it is true that we will go through, through things in this life that sometimes we will never fully understand how God was working and moving. We just have to take it by faith that he was and he is. And we lift our hands and we worship him and say, I don't understand why you did it like that, why you don't move now, why you took so long, why it turned out like this. But I know who you are, Lord. I know your character. You're for me. You sent your son to die on the cross for me. You redeem me. You put your spirit within me. One day I will rule and reign with your son. That's enough to know that you are trustworthy. But it's by faith, isn't it? It's by faith. The calendar kind of just gives us that little physical piece that just uh, gives us a, a nugget in the natural. But we're spiritual people, and we're worshiping a God who is spirit. So may we trust the Lord. So maybe you need to be a Miriam, and the Lord is now calling you out to step out into something Take that giant step. Even though you feel maybe like a little tiny, in, insignificant person in the grand scheme of things, you step out and do what the Lord has called you to do. Maybe you're in that place of now the Lord's taking you into obscurity. It's like, God, I know that you have this plan and you're doing this and you're doing that, but why these things and why? It looks like nothing's going to happen. If the Lord has called you, just learn those lessons of timing, of humility, of what his plan is and what his power is. And if you've never come running to the ark and found salvation, then you need to come to Jesus today. You need to call upon him, and he will hear you, and he will answer you. And I'd love to lead you in a prayer of doing that right now. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are of a trustworthy sort. Lord, no, no one. Not a thousand of your best people combined are better than you. Lord, what you say you're going to do, you do. The way you do it, it's always right. It's full of compassion and mercy. And I pray you would give us strength. Maybe some of you do need to repent. You're a follower of the Lord. But boy, you've been, your finger's been in the face of God a lot because of the circumstances of your life. And that process of time thing has you all twisted up. God's bigger than you. And he's doing God things greater than you, even greater than your deliverance. Have faith. Have faith and trust him. And repent of that and ask him to fill you afresh. Maybe you're that Miriam. 
Maybe you're a sister in the Lord and you know what God's put in your heart to do. I mean, it's like you, the scene's unfolding in front of your face. Like right now, you hear the voice of the princess saying, look at this, a Hebrew baby. And you know it's time for you to speak. It's time for you to step. Why don't you step out and see what the Lord does? Again, for some of you, you just need to come to Jesus for the very first time. You've never come. You've never repented of your sin. But you hear and you know that your sin separates you from the Lord. You feel it. You can sense it in your life. And you've been living thinking it's all about indulging yourself in sin. But, but you heard that it's just going to pass away and it's not going to last. Come to Christ. Repent of your sin. Ask him to forgive you and receive the life that he has for you. Right where you sit, ask him that. He will hear you and he will answer.